Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. It was just the most massive thing I've ever seen. I to tell you the honest truth, I thought, well, we're the only ones left on this planet. Something's happened. We've missed something here. The fear that went in me when I seen it was just un- like the feeling. I'd say it was fear, but I've never felt that feeling before in my entire life. It's a weird feeling. Like you can't explain it when you don't know. You feel like you're being followed, but you don't know what it is. We had two to our right, another one in front of us, another one to the left, and another one just across the road, shaking the daylight down the tree. All we get was a big red eye. I remember waking up and looking at the end of the bed, and there was a figure there, almost insect-like, and then I blacked out. Welcome to the show, everyone. My name is Cade Moyer, and you are listening to the Believe Paranormal and UFO Podcast. If you have had an encounter and would like to share it, please get in touch with me. My email address is believepod at gmail.com. If you enjoy the podcast, be sure to leave us a rating or review wherever you listen and head on over to our website, believepod.com, and consider becoming a member to get bonus episodes and video content. Tonight, I am joined by a very new friend of mine, Mr. Ben Hurl, and I met Ben down at the Cardwell UFO Festival earlier this year, and Ben had this super, super incredible presentation, but unfortunately, I missed the majority of it because the the festival was crazy. I had a lot of things going on, and I caught little tiny tidbits of it. So I had to get him on the show to to talk about some of the the more weirder UFO cases in Australian history. So Ben, welcome back to the podcast. Yeah, hey, thank you so much for having me on. It's it's a pleasure to be here. I love your work, and it was fantastic meeting you at Cardwell. It's it's great to meet new people. That's why you go and do these events. Yeah, absolutely. And that was my first time at that event, and. And I was I was very suspicious about how much I was going to enjoy it, and from the from the get go, it was just a blast from start to finish. So you know, you you actually hosted the event, and you did such an incredible job of it. You're like this amazing ringleader of like handling us crazies and keeping us all in line. So hats off to you for that, mate. Yeah, thanks for that, mate. Because we because I come from Victoria, and, and I, I we had no pre-meeting or you know, just strategy discussion or anything. I just rock up to the hall on the day and, <laughs> and it just, yeah, it just happens. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. It was like, just get into it. And uh, the the speakers were like so, so varied. You know, you had a lot of people who were like very grounded, some people who were like a little bit in the middle and some people who had some like very different thoughts to, uh, uh, I guess, a lot of the phenomenon. And it was a really good, like, melting pot of ideas and, and different points of view, which I thought was, like, a, a really fantastic outcome for an event like that. Yeah, yeah, it was. It was. It, it's it's such a it, – because what they're trying to do at an event like that is it, it's got to appeal to a whole, whole cross-section of the, of, the, of the paranormal UFO market. There's people that have all sorts of different interests in it because it's such a multifaceted – uh, phenomenon, you know. So, and that's a, and that's a big challenge for a festival or a um, 
or a conference or anything like that is to have something for everybody. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think this event does it, it, it does it very well. And uh, I highly recommend anyone who's kind of been on the fence about going to it uh, to definitely check it out because I'll be going again to all the all the future ones that I can possibly get to I, i'm i'm kind of ashamed that it took me so long to kind of get around to to doing it um yeah. but now there's no stopping me i'm i'm gonna be a, an expo junkie yeah yeah 100 and and the thing is, like in america this stuff is there in a huge capacity and in australia we do everything on such a small scale and i've done conferences before helped organize them and it is a it is just hell trying to make uh, conferences and festivals and expos bringing it together is just one hell of a stress ball for the for the organizers so yeah australian really needs uh it needs a groundswell of support for these events like card well that's this as well as my third time going up there and uh i, I just said I've, I've got to support an event like this because there's no other one like it in australia yeah uh it has potential and and we need this these these public live events where people interested in paranormal, interested in UFO fields specifically, can come along and interact with 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 professionals in the industry, experiences, and just really, it really becomes alive for you once you get into that environment. Yeah, yeah, absolutely agree with everything there. But mate, where what got you into into the world of UFOs and the in the unknown? Because you know it's not something that uh, a lot of people kind of just stumble into. Um, you know, some people kind of have a, an experience with UFO, or they know someone who had an experience. Um, like for myself, I, I kind of got into the weird and the wonderful because my dad told me he had a, an encounter with a flying Dutchman of all things. Wow! And, yeah, and he was a fisherman, and so my my entire kind of childhood growing up. He was always away at sea. So for him to come back and say, hey, guess what? I saw this ghost ship. That kind of blew my mind and sent me on this this road down the, the world of the paranormal. So that's kind of how I got into it. But how? what about you? Like, what was that instigator for you to go, yeah, I'm, I'm into this. I'm going to go check it out. It's been an innate part of my life since childhood. So the first books that I ever bought through the Scholastic Book Club back in the early 70s were books on UFOs, the very <laughs> first books. And it's had this organic uh, part of my DNA from from the very get go, and I always believed, instantly believed, intuitively believed that um, that this universe is a lot bigger and, and uh, more complex and varied in in the way it operates and, than than we can possibly understand. And that flying Dutchman thing alone would be four episodes with me. Yeah. Like you know, it, there's so much you could talk about just just with that alone and what, why how that is. So it's always been there in my life. Uh, it's it's riffed along in the background at different periods in time. It's been to the forefront, gone to the background, but it's it's always been there. And it was around about 2010 when I made the decision that, that I was actively going to become an investigator. I thought I, I, I had done a lot of other things in my life, and I thought now's the time I want to be an investigator, and I want to be around people who are fascinated by this this whole phenomenon. So I went down to Melbourne. I don't live in Melbourne. I live three hours east of Melbourne. And, I'm, and I met a guy, George Simpson, who was on your show. Yeah, George is a lovely gentleman. Yeah, yeah. And George was having... The only thing in Victoria was George's meetings at the Chelsea Caravan Park um, with about maybe 15 people turning up. That was the only thing happening in Victoria. And I wow. sought that out from, from three hours away. I drove down and I went to a couple of his meetings. And from there, I met other people and uh, and and 
became the director of Victorian UFO Action, which came out of that. And then we had a state-based group. And I then spent the next uh, 10 years, basically, uh, coordinating the group, doing current investigations, doing cold case investigations, uh, making videos about all of that. And then we also arranged a couple of conferences, speaks, talk nights, and all that sort of stuff along the journey as well. And I was going to Melbourne once a month, uh, from three hours away every month to to coordinate these this this particular group in Melbourne at that time, and I had my own experiences. Also, people say to send a UFO. Yes, I've seen UFOs. That's no no question about that. I've had some stranger experiences as well, and uh, so the whole thing from 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 the very genesis was from childhood right through into adulthood. Where in 2010 I thought, right, I'm leaping into this in a major way. And that brings us up to this point uh, this evening, sitting here having a chat to you. So, and there would be episode upon episode in all of that. But that's the basics of what got me of how I got involved. Yeah, yeah. It's funny. Uh, like, there's there's something just inheritively curious about the unknown in in the world. And I, I think I had a very similar like connection to it because I was quite young when my father told me that he saw the the flying Dutchman. I, I was in I was in uh, primary school. So I was very, very young. And I was very much like the same as you as that as soon as those kind of school book clubs came around, I was always the kid getting the weird books. That's me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I've got a vast collection here. <laughs> two two pieces so, in a pod, mate. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, I actually sought out the book. Uh, my primary school had a, had one book on UFOs, and I borrowed it and borrowed it and borrowed it and borrowed it. And then when I was an adult, I thought I must track that book down, and I actually did. I found it, and I and I and I bought it, and now it's in my collection. The very first book that I, that got me interested. So. It's um yeah it's come full circle in that regard. Yeah, I, I it's it's so funny Ben because I am on the hunt for two books that exist out there. Um I I kind of know what the covers are. Um Nine. but I just can't remember the name of these books. So I I'm, I'm always looking for like these like weird facts of the world type of type of books because in my mind uh one that really sticks with me that kind of made me go down this massive route of the unknown because it had the flying dutchman in this book um it was like this this ufo on the cover I'm, i swear it even had nessie on the front and it was all kind of like illustrated throughout it because obviously it was for young children at the time and yeah. i am on the hunt for that i and i would pay just ridiculous amounts of money to get that back into my library and the the second one was this almost tiny pocket book um yeah. that somehow knew every alien race that existed and kind of catalogued them uh within it and it was kind of like in this maroni brown little book and i yep. those two for some reason just really stick in my mind i might be able to help you out with some of that so um uh, after, after the show i'll send you i'll send you i'll send you a couple of uh images yes that would be amazing i think i think you're the you're the man to help me out but so you you go from like having this just i guess general curiosity about the the unknown and kind of knowing that or having this feeling you know that we're not alone in this this universe um how do you go from that into becoming a a genuine bona fide investigator because that's a that's a pretty big leap you go to a couple of well i would imagine you went to probably hundreds and hundreds of these kind of meetings and gatherings um what was the that turning point where you go i i want to turn this into something more official is it that you wanted to get something 
kind of on a record type base, like how Australian Yowie yeah, Research, how they got it like a catalogue and, and things like that. Is it something like that? Yeah, we, we had all those intentions uh, of doing all of that and we and we, we succeeded and failed at the same time. And that was one of our goals was to, was to create a, a web page that had, you know, all these cases, links and everything like that to all the work we'd done and everything like that. Um, but as you probably well appreciate, the amount of work that goes into putting all that together is huge. And when you have limited numbers of people, time and cash, um, that all conspires against you to to sort of achieve that. Mm. And that was kind of like a byproduct of what I wanted to do from a personal perspective. Like for me, it was like, I want to stand in a field. I want to look at a, a, a mark on the ground. I want to look at, at, at stock that's been scared and terrified. I want to talk to witnesses who don't know what the hell happened to them. And that was that was the personal connection for me that made me say, and I want to be able to do this. I want to become a professional in this particular field. Yeah. Now, there's not there's, there's, there's courses you can study and all that sort of stuff, but there's not actually any defining um, qualification to be a researcher. You just have to have the burning interest. I yeah. think that's the the first and foremost thing. Anybody can do this. You don't need, and I hate the word ufologist, because <laughs> to be an ologist implies that you've studied something at university. To become an ologist, you know, an archaeologist, a biologist, you know, it's the you know, like, and the, and no one is a ufologist. You don't go to absolutely. You don't, you don't go to Sydney or Melbourne University and study a, a five year course and do a post grad studies in ufology. So. You know, so that doesn't exist for me. It was about you must have the you must have the burning passion, desire, um, and curiosity about it. You must have an open mind, but you must also apply that to some to some level of um, of scientific analysis as well. So I was never from the point of view of just accepting what I was told or accepting what I was shown, or or even an agenda of proving that UFOs exist. That's not my interest. I'd never had any intention of proving UFOs exist. I did it because I loved it. Yeah. You know, it wasn't because I, I had some overwhelming agenda to, to, to bring this out to the world and, and, and show people. No, I was doing it because I just loved it myself. And that was that was my initial impetus for getting involved. Now, once I got involved, once we started doing things and you see that all these other people enjoy it as well, that became a really satisfying part of what I did, seeing team members thrive, Seeing that everybody was was thriving on having having the ability to get together and make something happen and hire a city hotel and, and hire a convention center and fly people in from all over the country, it was amazing to do to have those experiences. As much as it was terrifying and all that as well at the same time, it was stressful. the The net result was was fantastic, you know, and we did a lot of really good work in that in that field. Uh, so all of those things sort of compounded from from personal obsession, personal interest, through to through to having a broader uh, goal of of bringing it to a team and then bringing it to the public, whoever the hell's interested. Because it, you know, in the public, it's like everyone has an opinion on. So like, not everyone's into UFOs. That's a fact. You know, and when all this stuff comes out, ultimately it's going to be a lot of people have to have some worldview shifts going on. I can tell you, but for someone like me, you, and other people who are out there who, who listen to this program, it's not a big jump. To, you know, if, if official word, if official word comes out, it's not a big shift for us. But for other people, it's a huge shift. You know, and I've encountered every type of attitude along the way to about this topic, from from outright believers to outright debunkers, and everything in between along that along those that scale. Yeah. So you you find that, and you can't 
you, you can't make people believe or not believe. It's completely up to them. You know, the, you know, the, you know. That's a personal a personal choice. But one thing I will say is, you know, now I don't care what the weekend's golf results were, right? But everybody has an opinion on UFOs. They exist, they don't exist, or they're not sure. Mm, yeah, absolutely. You're, you're spot on. And it, it's funny because, like, UFOs are one of these things that I, I haven't really encountered it with, with anything else because people either believe the Yahweh exists or they, they don't in they think you're crazy and they kind of move on. But yeah. but with, with UFOs, they, they I, I feel like nearly every person has some type of emotional connection to that question. Exactly. And exactly, I, I don't know what it is. And I don't know if it's a, a realization of we're not the, the only things in this universe. And does True. that make me insign- uh, insignificant? Or is it like a, a sense of fear about it? Or I, I, I don't know what it is, but people genuinely have more emotive responses to the, do you think aliens real? Do you think UFOs are real? And the ones that are, have the, the most trouble with it, I usually find kind of chuckle about it and make a laugh and like trying to make you feel silly about it. Well, and I, I don't know if, you, if you've kind of found that yourself. Oh, 100%. I, we, I recently went to a, uh, a work uh, seminar in, in, in Melbourne and they'd said to us, you had to, you had to introduce yourself, where you're from, and something about yourself that nobody knew. So I say, you know, I'm Ben, I do this, and I investigate UFOs. Well, you get <laughs> such a pol- polarizing uh, response to that from people. I can and imagine. You get a po- this is in a, in a business meeting, you know, and, I, and I'll just come out with I'm, I'm loud and proud when it comes to this sort of thing. I'm not, a, I'm not afraid to talk about this in front of anybody. And uh, one of the guys just said, he said, that's just not real. He said, that's just, that's just a complete waste of time. You know, he says to me, have you seen one? And I go, yeah, I have. I have, but it's not about me seeing one, you know, like, you know, that's great for me, but, but if I see one, you didn't see one, so that that doesn't do anything, yeah. you know. And I said to him, you know, you're entitled to, to feel however you feel, and, and I'm not going to, to try and influence you one way or the other. You know, I, I'm not pushing something on you here. And then other people go, well, that's really cool, or, well, you know, or everything else in between. So you just get this this polarizing um, response when you say I investigate the paranormal yeah 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 absolutely and it's and it's one of these things it's like oh I don't believe in it but I did have this weird thing happen I'm not saying yeah. it's that but something else happened that was weird yes or my brother my uncle my yeah. cousin my you know the pe- people you don't have to go far to find UFO stories you don't have to go far at all. You could be at any gathering, subtly raise a topic, and next minute there'll be people talking about UFOs. Absolutely, you know, yeah, hundred percent. So that is the, that is the magic of, of paranormal, in my opinion. That even though people might say they're not into it or whatever, there only there's only seven degrees of separation between them and a UFO report, maybe even less than that. So it's a very it's a very uh, very common, even if even if it's not part of your direct daily experience, everybody is not that far away from. An experience. Oh, absolutely. I, I would even say it's three degrees. You know, there's well, three points of contact in someone's life who would have an encounter with something that they can't explain. Yes. Yeah, it's it's extraordinarily common. It is. And, and I think that's the that what people have to realize that that it is such a common occurrence. People say it's an extraordinary thing, and it 
is, but it's also very common. You know, now I'm not saying that you can you could go outside and look at the night sky for a month on end and see nothing but satellites, right? And and uh, the International Space Station, and uh, and that's about all you're going to see up there. And, and the paranormal was a little strange like that. But if you walk out and take your bins out one night, you could see a flying saucer at low, at low altitude right in front of your eyes. So it's that's the the strangeness of the phenomenon too. It, it finds you, you don't find it often. Yeah, you know? oh, 100%. And that's something that I always bring up with this podcast is that the the guests that come on here are so varied. Like we've had lawyers, we've had doctors, we've had a surgeon come on here. Uh, and, wow. you, you know, they, they all use like a, a fake name because I and I respect that. But right. the the paranormal or, the you know, the weird and the wonderful, like it doesn't discriminate. Like it doesn't give a crap who you are. If, no. if you're going to see something, you're going to see something. Yes, yes, that is so true. You are, you are, you are kind of almost destined to, to this to this result if you're going to be a part of it. And what I love the most as a researcher and an investigator, I love an, a, a witness who had no prior interest in the topic at all. They are my most favourite witnesses at all. Yeah, uh, people like often it'd be things like policemen, farmers, those type of guys. They're too busy. They don't have. They're not into flights of fancy. That they, they don't. They don't follow any of this stuff. But boom, they have an experience. And I've spoken to senior level inspectors in the Victorian Police Force. I've spoken, stood in the field and spoken to farmers. Mm-hmm. I've spoken to all manner of occupations and people from all over all walks of life. And they all are basically relating the same thing. I had an experience. I don't know what it was. I want to know what it was. I will probably never know what it was. And that's a very common attitude and response you'll find from people who have experiences. And that's and some people have a one-off high high strangeness level of experience, which we might even which we'll probably talk about tonight, some of those cases. Um, you know, or there's people who have ongoing experiences. You know, there, there can be a lifetime of experiences. Yeah. So so this this thing is a, is, a, is a tapestry that weaves in a very, very unusual and you cannot put your finger on it in any kind of way. And that's what I love about it. Yeah, absolutely. I think the, the thing I love the most about the paranormal, or, or, I, and I, I say the paranormal like as this encompassing kind of term for, you know, UFOs, the cryptids, everything, um, is that the, the more I learn about it, the, the less I realize I know. And it... I think it's just the best thing because I would love to go into every story and every encounter kind of just completely blind because for me, it's it's like the best treat that someone is sharing this life-changing encounter that they've had with me. And every time it's different. Like it is always different. And that is just the the most amazing part about the paranormal. Oh, it is. It is. You know, and, 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 it's, a, and it's a position of trust. When when someone wants to share their share their experience with you, whether it's a standing around a barbecue or, or sitting down with an investigator and a notepad and a, and a video camera, whatever level that is, if someone someone trusts you enough that you're going to listen to the story, that you're not going to ridicule them and and put them down. It's a it's a it's a position of, of high responsibility. I regard that as anyone who is who is investigating it, anyone who is open minded about it. And people need to be encouraged to bring these stories out. I, I just, 
wheat for all the stories we've never heard about. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and that's that, that's exactly yeah. it. You know, like for every one person that comes forward, there um, would be thousands of others who are the the complete silent majority, which is, yep. I, I don't know, like I really hope we see a, a changing of that tide because... I, I like to think that, you know, people like us, we create these really safe spaces for people to share their stories. But I completely understand why some people can't because it's it's world-breaking events. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's, you know, you have, you have a job that, 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 that you might, that obviously job and family are probably the two things that, that will restrict you from, from saying something. Uh, you know, obviously historically pilots are in that position. You know, yeah. pilots having, you're never going to hear about it. Um, even if they do report it, it's going to go to to the airlines to the airlines uh, records, and you can't FOI an airline. No, no, you know, and they, they, don't they all sign NDAs, so they can't talk yeah. about anything. They don't have to tell you anything. Yeah, you know, yeah, the government's responsible for telling you things, and you can FOI a government. You try and FOI Qantas, see what see how far that gets you. <laughs> you know? Nowhere, nowhere. Private companies completely off yep. limits. And that's why all the EBE stuff is is being dispersed to private industry, so so they don't have to show you. You yeah. know, like that's that's pretty clear. I think at this point in time. Oh, one hundred percent, one hundred percent. And you know, those are those are all rabbit holes that I could go down with you for for hours <laughs> and hours. But I um I do I do have to kind of I want to steer us a little bit back on track because otherwise yeah. I'm gonna I'm gonna talk to you for hours, mate. And <laughs> obviously we're 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 gonna get you back because um yeah. you know we 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 gel so well, Ben, and uh, yeah. I feel like any conversation we have is going to be difficult to, to limit it to to our yes. our, our slot. Um, but mate, I like I said at the start here, I'm I'm spewing. I missed a couple of really good chunks of your your presentation at Cardwell. Um, yep. And one thing that you kind of said there just before really did pique my interest about the the high strangeness that kind of goes on with UFO encounters. Um, yeah. It doesn't really seem to to kind of happen with the paranormal. Uh, happens with yowies a yes, lot. Yes. Um, yeah. But UFOs all the time. So, mate, have you have you got some cases that you can kind of share that kind of go down that route? And now a quick word from our sponsor. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Also, are you wanting more content? Why not become a Believe Plus member? You'll get access to exclusive podcasts and episodes that aren't available to the public. Not only that, you'll also get our regular feed without any ads. Head to believepod.com forward slash plus to sign up today for just $5 a month. Yes, I, yes, I certainly, I certainly have because I, I, I have always drifted towards high strangeness events. Now, you could say, well, all these things are strange. And yes, they are. Every UFO encounter is unique. Yes, it is. Okay. But, but within all of that, there is what, there is a cluster of, of cases or more than a cluster, but there's a, there's a galaxy of cases. That really exhibit high strangeness. Now, what do we mean by high strangeness? High strangeness means that you have got something that has occurred 
that is almost beyond their ability to make it up in the in the first instance. So even if you sat down and schemed up a bizarre tale, a, a high stranger's case would eclipse what you could create on a on a hoax level. It is just it is just right up there. You'll also have a degree of physical evidence that this high strangeness of case actually did occur. Wow. Right? So so you've got that as well. So they're, they're two key things that I find really interesting. And the other thing I really like about high strangeness cases is you'll often get an object or or a entity or something that's described in a way that you'll just go, wow, that's something different. That's something really weird. You know, whereas lights in the sky is which was a majority of what UFO reports are. They're in the sky. People see them. It's a light in the sky. UAP, UFO, whichever one you want to take, uh, you can. Now, there are high strangeness lights in the sky cases, but I tend to find that the lights in the sky cases, whilst interesting, there's very little you can do with them. You know, like once it's been and gone, that's it. But with a high strangeness case, there's there's a much greater chance to interact with that case with those witnesses and with what occurred. That's why I love high strangeness. Now, you might say high strangeness is, is not that, it might not, not be that frequent. It is. That's what I'm here to say. Like, you know, now while it doesn't occur every day, every week, or even every decade potentially, if you look across the the, the breadth of, of UFO history, you'll see that there are many, many high strangeness cases. And I'm, I'm going to kick off with one of my favorites, which I love. Now, it's not from that long ago. It's it's from uh, 1987 and 1988, so it's not it's not dim and distant, but it's it's um, it's about the time when I was 18, 19 years old. Just for a timestamp reference on that, <laughs> and it it's occurred to a man called Bronte Lloyd, which is I love his name too. Bronte Lloyd was a farmer, and he had a farm just north of uh, Clare in south in South Australia at a place called Spalding which is below Jamestown. It's just a little nowhere community where there's just a hamlet grouping of farms, all big farms in this area. You can drive straight through it. And he was a farmer. Now, farmers, are, as I said earlier, are one of my favourite, favourite witnesses to have. They don't they don't mess around. They they And they know their environment too, which is the other key thing to note about farmers' cases there. Absolutely. Yes, they know the land, they know the weather, they know the sky, they know everything. So they're very, very good witnesses, farmers. Now, what happened was a series of events that happened to, to, to Bronte, and they were all high strangeness. And it started off in 1987, in May, him and his uh, son were seeding a paddock. Now, as they were seeding the paddock, Bronte looked up and noticed that a group of UFOs had come down and were hovering over the top of the paddock silently, about four or five discs or disc-shaped objects were sitting just above the farm watching as he and his son were doing the seeding. Now, his son decided not to hang around and he took off. And Bronte was left to finish the job. And he he finished doing the seeding, looking up at these objects that just sat silently above the paddock as he did it. Now, the very next morning, he awoke before dawn and he said he was lying in bed and it was as though time and space were suddenly suspended. Time and space suddenly suspended. He was aware of a pitch blackness, total blackness and freezing cold. 
He couldn't move and he thought he was having a heart attack. This is the, this is the, the night after seeing these objects above the paddock. He thought he was having a heart attack. He felt himself floating upwards and he felt something was being pushed against either side of his cheeks and he felt this intense pain. It was like being stung by insects and he felt these tubes going into his cheeks and he grabbed the tubes and they writhed in his hands like snakes and he was trying to pull these tubes out of his cheeks. He battled against whatever it was with this with this action on his cheeks and something was pinning him down. He tried to reach across for the bedside light switch and kept brushing away at this pressure from these tubes that were in his cheeks. And he knew that there was something close by and was moving around around him, just but just out of reach. He couldn't reach it. And then he passed out. And he woke up later in the morning and he did not remember that earlier experience. And it wasn't until he was shaving that morning that he noticed that he had three small marks on his cheeks, either cheek, and four more across the top of his nose. Right? So just, I'll leave you with that. Stay wow. off with. Now, three weeks later, in June, it was approaching nightfall, and Bronte and his son were again engaged in ploughing, when a bright red light appeared in the sky and then skimmed down to hover 30 metres above some trees near the house. This red light came down, hovered above a stand of trees near the house, and sat there for a while, and then it blew away. Bronte said that he was familiar with aircraft, there was nothing like that, he'd never seen anything like this before, and it just, it just took off. Now, Bronte returned to his house, and his son went, went away. His son wasn't living with him. He had his own separate property. And Bronte returned home. Now, shortly after he got home, a visitor came calling to the house. Now, the first thing was the dogs went absolutely berserk. The farm dogs went crazy. And he'd never seen them acting that way. They jumped into the air and then they cowered, jumped into the air and then they cowered. And he looked out and there was something near the stand of trees. Oh, I'm getting, was, I'm getting chills, Ben. <laughs> it's a bloody ripping, so it's a ripping tail, I tell you. Now, at first he thought it was a car because this is, this is dusk, this is around, around dusk time. Now, 50 metres from the, from the back door was where the, where the stand of 12, 12 trees were. Beneath the trees was a shiny craft, and it was about four metres in diameter, two metres high, circular in shape, and sitting on a square base, and the object had portholes that went all around it and three large headlights on its front and supporting legs on the ground. Now, as the dogs continued to howl, bark, jump up and down, Bronte left the house and walked slowly over towards the stand of trees. And he was now aware that he was, he wasn't looking at a car, he was looking at some type of flying apparatus that had wow. landed in his attic. Now he fled back to the house, scrambled to find a torch, and he found one, but the batteries were flat, so he goes to find more batteries to put in the torch. And he also called his family, who were actually at a nearby property, and he said to them, don't come home. There's something here. I don't know what it is. Right? So the family was, was scared and they stayed, they, they stayed away. So he's, he's, he's terrified. He's shaken. He slumps into his lounge chair 
in the lounge room. He just doesn't really know what to do. The next thing he's aware of, footsteps. Oh, no. Footsteps. Bronte says, I won't forget them. They were short, close together, sounded like someone walking on or in plastic. I sat in the chair, staring at the door. I wouldn't open it. I was scared stiff. Right? This is what he says. He got out of the chair and he steeled himself. He walked up and he opened the door. And he had seen that a light had been flicked on in the kitchen. And he noticed two beings moving through the room in a darting action and in a blur. So when they moved, there was a blur. So they'd moved from point A to point B very fast and there was a blur of as they as they shot around the room these two small beings. Wow. Now yes, and it keeps the whole situation keeps getting more intense. <laughs> and he then notices from the front door that the dogs are surrounding and barking at something next to the trees. At that point he blacks out and he doesn't come to until the family have come home and he he was in this deep, deep sleep. Now, they rang the police and the police came out and a search was conducted and they found that a landing spot under the trees had actually was actually there. There was the impressions in the ground where these landing pads had been and there was no mistake that a large object had disturbed the ground on the clump of the trees. Strange footprints were also found near the trees uh, where the object had been witnesses. These strange footprints had been found there too. This is in Clare, South Australia, 1987 time period. Now, this is this is where it gets really, really strange. On Bronte's face developed two large brown patches on each of his cheeks. Now, one would grow larger, the other would shrink. Then the other would grow larger and the other one would shrink. And then they would move around on his cheeks. These brown marks that look like birthmarks would move around on his cheeks independently into different positions. And he what? had that for the rest of his life. Like this it, farm. It, it would constantly move. Yep. They would move independently, grow, shrink, shrink and grow where these tubes had been in his cheeks. And he had he had that forever. And he, he's passed away now. And I did track down his grave, and I've got a photo of his grave on my computer. Um, he's buried in the, in the Jamestown Cemetery. And when I get across to South Australia, uh, I'm definitely planning to go to Jamestown and visit Bronte's um, last uh, grave site where he, where, he now, where he now is. And um, his face was actually examined by a biochemist, Australian biochemist called Dom, Tom Coote, C-O-T-E. And Tom Coote uh, was very fascinated by this this strange phenomena that was happening on his cheeks and they found anomalies in the samples um, when they took samples of his skin they found anomalies in, the, in his electrolyte levels uh, in his actual skin as a result of that and he had those marks for life wow now here's a now here's a here's a postscript for this particular case this is the that's the Bronte Lloyd case now about an hour's drive from Bronte's property south uh, is the place, is a town called Clare, South Australia. Now, 
1989, a man called Stephen Langman, who was a justice of the peace, so he was no idiot, was awoken by a very bright white glow coming from an object on a nearby lounge chair. And the time was 5.40am. And instead of getting up to inspect the light, he lay there and watched as the light came and hovered over his and his wife's feet. This bright white light. Now, their feet were under two blankets and a doona, right? And they could see their feet through the doona. And he moved one foot and the glow moved to match the movement of his foot. So there's a sense of, like, intelligence to that. Yes, yes. This this thing was, he described it as something was scanning, scanning their feet. And he woke his wife, who was with him, and she reacted just as calmly. And they observed the foot glowing phenomenon. And then suddenly the light that was over on the lounge chair and the glow over their feet disappeared and they both went back to sleep. Huh. Now his wife said that they were not frightened at the time, but a few months later... She had terrible difficulty sleeping and she was scared to sleep as she had not been able to sleep. She had a lot of trouble sleeping about a month after that event. So this only occurred a year after Bronte Lloyd's strange encounter in the next town down. Wow. So, you know, so this is these feet that were being scanned by a glow that would move with the feet and another white light off to the side. So these are high strangeness cases. That's a definition of two high strangeness cases. I'm not going to lie. That Bronte encounter, like that that whole set of high strangeness is yeah. genuinely terrifying. And I'm, I'm, I'm shocked that that is not like a, a household story yeah. for, for UFO and, you know, potentially like entity interaction. Yep. That's nuts. Yep. Like the fact that this guy went through the rest of his remaining life with this condition of like this skin condition of these things moving around and changing size like that's unheard of like i i'm obviously i'm no doctor i'm no skin expert (laughs) (laughs) but i i i've never heard of anything like that like that is that's not normal like that is the the definitive of like being weird yes that is that is it is it is my flagship high strangeness case. It's the one that I always lead with because I love it. You've got this just this this farmer, a farmer, a man looking for no no publicity, no fame. Didn't make a dollar out of it. It didn't become a. It's not a household story. It's not a it's not a Westall. It's not a Fred Valentich. It's not a Kelly Cahill. Yeah. It's none of these. It's none of these encounters. It's a unknown case. Now you. It's hard to track down online. You can find some information on it online. There is some some information online, but it is not highly highly available out there. It's just not out there. And it's a great case because it has physical evidence. It has a chain of high strangeness events. It has a credible witness. It is and and it has stuff you just couldn't make up. Yeah. Like, you know, like it's just amazing yeah and and the fact that like you know there's even potentially a an archived police report for the the call out there is just even further credence to this incredibly terrifying encounter um i can only imagine the 
the thoughts that like that whole Lloyd family was having when when this type of stuff yeah. happened. Like the son, you know, obviously bailing while the UFOs are above him. Like I genuinely don't blame him. Um, the the dad is obviously the a, an extreme salt of the earth character to go stuff the UFOs. I need to get this done. Like this is this is the family yep. livelihood. I need to do it. Like that yep. is that is a, a genuine hardcore farmer as it comes. Um yep. I I don't know how they go through their whole life with that just being that's their normal and that's the 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 terrifying part of that because that that encounter just didn't like leave a mark and no pun intended like in that moment, it left a mark for his entire life. Hundred percent. Now I've got another case from Victoria where a farmer was ploughing a field in uh, Wimmera in, in in Victoria, and he had this very similar thing on the tractor. And this this red light came down, and it flew all the points of the paddock as he was as he was out there ploughing this field. And then he got scared, and he he, he drove his tractor out of the paddock, and he drove it back home because this red light had come down and was following him around the paddock. So. Yes, it's it's a very strange thing. Now, just uh, we won't have time for it tonight, probably. But there's a but in Victoria at the same time, which is not that far from where Spalding and Clare is in the very northwest of Victoria. There's a place called um, there's a town called Mildura, big city. Then south of that's a big wheat belt, and in that wheat belt there was another farm that had another series of strange events that that riffs off and parallels the Bronte story. Uh, slightly differently, but also on a broad level, there's similarities in terms of multiple events on a farm with people. It's it's really incredible stuff. You know, is that a fairly recent encounter? No, that's also 1987, 1988 at the same time. Really, so it's the same time period as the as the Bronte one. Um, I mean, I, I suppose I can share it now uh, on, a, on a basic level. No, no, let's let's like dive into it because I'm I'm pretty yeah. interested because you know I've interviewed someone from around that region and that name of the what you said there was it sounded really really familiar and All right. I I believe the this episode happened in that area because uh, essentially guy owned a farm. He had, yep. a, he had a, a potential craft land in his field, um, and it left a left a big mark in there. And he believes that there was entities coming out of this thing, but he was just too petrified to to investigate it. Like his dog jumped off his little four by four kind of cart thing, bailed yeah, it yeah. back, and he's like, "I'm done. I'm out of here." And yet, went yep. back the next day and crop circles yep well there's a there's a long history of crop circles in the Mallee mm. Mallee is the northwest of Victoria and it has a long history now this I, I will talk about the one from that area because it, it just it just riffs and connects so well to the Bronte Lloyd story so in around the same t- around the same time frame there is a there's a little place like sporting but it's called it's called speed and just west of Speed is a not even more obscure area called West Turif. Now, West Turif is the actual location of this next one we're going to talk about. Speed's just a little little truck stop on the way up to Mildura, and then West Turif is just a group of farmhouses, eerily similar to to the uh, Bronte Lloyd situation. So, 
Now, what had happened there was there was a, fa- a farm owned by Max and Nancy Jolly was the was the farms was the farmers who owned this um, this property, and their son Stuart was was there as well, and he he was on the farm, and, and the three of them are the central characters in this particular this particular story. So what happened was they they had started seeing strange lights at night, and so had their neighbours. The neighbours had been out at night, and they were seeing strange lights in the sky. Now, one morning when Nancy woke, she went outside and she went to turn the tap on the tank and she found that the 4,000-gallon house tank was completely dry. There was not a drop of water in it, whereas the day before, the tank had been completely full. Overnight, there's no water. There's no water on the ground. The water's just gone. And she was puzzled. They said they had no idea what had possibly happened to 4,000 gallons of water from their tank. Now... On another evening, the son was home and he was asleep in bed and all of a sudden he heard this extremely loud noise like a jet engine mixed with cicadas. This high-pitched sound. He runs outside the house and there's just a vacant sky. There's nothing around. Just black, black night sky. The dogs have run off. The, house, the dogs would have come and followed him outside. The dogs have gone. Then, another night, while his mum and dad had gone off to a meeting, all the sheep in the pad in the sheep paddock, seven hundred ewes, seven hundred of them, right, are all bleating and going crazy. And he walks outside and he looks over to the sheep paddock where there's seven hundred ewes. They are all climbing over the top of each other in the far corner of the paddock. And they're all trying to get away from something. Oh, wow. And on the other side of the paddock is this giant golden globe that's hovering. Hovering there. And it's slowly pushing the sheep all into the back corner of the paddock. And the sheep are just going crazy. And the neighbor's sheep are going crazy. They're all running and jumping over fences as well. All the animals are going stark crazy. Now... His mum and dad and, and the object takes off. His mum and dad come home. They get a couple of torches. They go out in the paddock. And the sheep are just all propping at the mouth. They're just, they're just terrified sheep. Now, as they're walking around, they also find a wedge-tailed eagle. And the wedge-tailed eagle is on the ground, and it's just totally disorientated. It's flapping its wings. It can't, it can't fly. It's like the bird's drunk. And the, so the bird and the sheep were both completely out of sorts. Now, the next day, they went back to the paddock and had seen that the eagle wasn't there, so it must have come to its senses and it must have, it must have flown off. Now, they were due to do their harvesting of the wheat and the two harvesting contractors come in with the big combine harvesters. They go into the paddock to start doing the combine harvesting. They sit five metres off the ground. They stop, they stop the combine harvesters and there's five rings in the <gasps> paddock. No. Yep, five rings are in the paddock. One's, wow. one's about, I think, I haven't got my notes in front of me, but I think it was around about a six-metre ring and, two, th- and three-metre rings. Now, they had an investigator come up from Melbourne, John Ocatel, who I know John personally, and John came and investigated 
the crop circles. Now, they found there was actually a vast variety of circles right across the entire farm, plus the neighbouring farms. There was over 400 circles. Oh, my goodness. 400 circles. Now, when you when you were in the circle, it was hard ground. Outside the circle is soft, tilled soil. It was in the ring. It was like it had been baked, and it was baked down to about about eight inches. Hard baked ground. You could hit it with a crowbar, and the crowbar would just go wow. in your hand. Geez, that the- that has to be some intense heat to do that. Yes, yes, and all the wheat is bent over, not broken, and it's all weaved in a uh, in a clockwise or slash anti clockwise. Yeah, yeah, kind of typical um, crop circle, uh, not behavior, but like um, yes. I guess attributes. Right, the yeah, attributes of tra- exactly. That's that's exactly right. So that farm uh, and that they had a whole series of these these type of events occurring over multiple periods, multiple weeks with them and their neighbours. So it was. So what I like about that particular case is it's also a high strangeness. There's physical trace evidence, and you've got multiple witnesses, multiple people affected. You know, in Ponty's case, you could say, ah, he's just having a dream. No, he wasn't. He's got these marks on his face that, that moved around and grew and struck for the rest of his life. Something happened to that man. Mm. You know, got the Jolly family, who I've actually looked into that area, and um, both Max and Nancy have passed away. They're not around anymore. And the son, I tried my damnedest to track him down, and I'm a really, real, I'm a, like a bloodhound when it comes to looking for people. <laughs> And I traced him to, to the Northern Territory, to Darwin, and I found he had an ABN up there because ABN search is a great way to find people. Oh, the best way. And, yep. And I did an ABN search, found his name, but I have not been able to track him down. So I know he's in he's in the Northern Territory somewhere. But I would love to talk to him about, about those experiences that they had on that farm at that time. I, I even at the time made made inquiries in the local area to find out you know, where the family was, and that's what I that's what I what I found out. And I just kind of had the same feeling that Bronte would be dead too by the time I was getting into this case a few months ago. I thought, I bet he's dead too. And I found out, yeah, no, Bronte's passed away too. So unfortunately, now these these both, they were spoken to by investigators at the time in both cases. Colin Norris in South Australia did a full investigation on on the Bronte Lloyd case. And uh, John Ockertel in Victoria did a full investigation on the the, um, the West Turriff, a Jolly Farm incident as well. So they, they were investigated. There are some notes out there. You've got to dig to find them. Um, and, you know, John wrote a report on the on the circles on the West Tour farm. So there's some information out there. But like all these cases, it's drifting, it's disappearing, being forgotten. People don't know about them now. It's not in the media. And all these great cases, and, and I'm sure you'll agree they're brilliant, are... Uh, disappearing from the australian consciousness yeah. and so my i might regard my role as finding these these cases bringing them to the light again and lots of people like bill chalker and keith basterfield have done brilliant work doing a lot of work with australian ufo cases a lot of these cases have been investigated by them as well they've done they've written reports they've done all that over the years too but even that information is not commonly available you know, you have to you have to be following Bill or Keith or tr- dig out their old reports, and you know it's not easy to access this information. Now, that's just two of two and a half of of many high strangeness incidences. 
So another one I want to talk about, which is also equally fascinating. We've got time for another couple? Mate, let's do one more because I, I, I'm, I'm going to have to get you back on because you are, yeah. you're too fascinating of a of a bloke and you're a great storyteller because these these two encounters that we've kind of spoken about here, like they have genuinely blown my mind. And the fact that the that jolly encounter, <laughs> animals don't lie. Like animals, no. animals don't lie. There, if an animal is scared, there is something there, and that is yep. the most telling part of that that entire encounter, in in my opinion. But mate, let's finish yep. with one more because I I'm going to get you on for a whole series. We're going to do like yep. the, the unknown Australia. Yeah, let's yeah. do it. Let's mate, do it. I'm keen. <laughs> there's a lot. There's a lot. There's a lot of gold here. I tell you, definitely. Now, this time, we're going to go to Kempsey. So, Kempsey is in New South Wales. Uh, it's on the Maclay River. Now, this is this is long forgotten to history as well, too, but but um, Bill Chalker investigated this at the time. Um, this is, and this is 1971, right? So, we're going, we, we're going back a little further in time. But the Kempsey flat was an incredible UFO period of activity in the Kempsey district that occurred for about three years. That's from a 1971, long time. Yep. Even up to 1975, actually. Wow. From 1971, 1972, 1973, there was an unprecedented amount of UFO activity in and around the Kempsey area. The one we're going to talk about kicked it all off, and it's an absolute beauty. So... I, I did. I did. A th- I did a three episode series just on Kempsey on my, on my on my show. I did a three episodes just on Kempsey. That's how how full and rich that whole uh, flat is at that time. But just to give you an idea, but we're going to talk about one particular incident, my favourite from the Kempsey case. From the Kempsey case. So it happened on the second of April, nineteen seventy one. There's a couple of months in Australia that are that are, that are important to UFOs. April is one of them. October is another one. Right, so this happened in April. So if, the reason I say that is because if you're familiar with Westall, Burke's Flat, all those cases, they all occurred in April in different years. So April's always been a significant UFO year, a uh, month. Sorry. Now there's a little town just out of Kempsey called Greenhill. It's just five minute drive off, the, and it's right on the Maclay River. It's only probably three blocks of houses, not not very big. Now. One of the most extraordinary things happened there on that on the date of the 2nd of April at 10pm. Now, a man and his wife had been out visiting friends. They came home and about 9.30 they got home and they're sitting in the lounge room, they're watching TV and the man's playing with the baby on the floor. He decides, I want to get a drink. So he walks out to the kitchen, doesn't turn the light on and as he walks towards the kitchen sink, he sees a face... Staring in through the kitchen window. A face, this white face. Now, the window is seven feet off the ground. Okay? The window is seven feet off the ground. This white, he described it as a white, circular, round-shaped face was looking in through the window. Now, the man was sucked out through the window. He was 
This is reported in the um, in the Argus, the Kempsey Argus, in nine, and the Kempsey Argus is the source material for all these reports, and they treated it seriously at the time. The new, local newspaper was really, really good. They took all these encounters seriously, and this one is the most outlandish of them all, but it's got supporting evidence. Wow. So, so he claims that he was sucked out through the window by a strange entity. So... Now, what had happened was his wife was still in the lounge room and she heard glass breaking in the kitchen and she thought her husband had actually broken crockery and glassware left the drain on the sink. She ran into the kitchen in time to see his hips and legs disappearing horizontally, horizontally through the top half of the window above the sink. What? So, yeah, so this, this then the man fell took seven feet to the ground outside the house, but he only suffered minor cuts to one hand and arm despite the top pane of glass being broken. He'd fallen out onto the bo- on his, onto the bottom of the steps, the steps leading down underneath the window. He fell down on his back, 2.1 metres, got up, and his wife was stunned that he wasn't winded, he wasn't hurt, apart from a couple of scratches on his arm, and he ran straight down the driveway. And the terrified man was just just totally like had, had lost his lost his um lost his faculties. And he ran down the road very upset. He told his wife that he'd seen a strange, small, saucer-shaped face pressed up against the kitchen window, and that he'd been drawn out head first through the glass window by some unknown force. He vowed he would not live in the house again and he moved to Sydney. Wow. He never he never ever ever went back to the house. Now, the McClay newspaper at the time took photographs of the window. Now, the window is a square window, but there's a wooden be- there's a wooden um, uh, strut that goes through the two pi- two panes of glass. Only the top pane is broken, the centre wood piece remained intact, and the bottom pane also was not was not broken. None of the glass fell on the inside of the house. All the glass fell on the outside of the house. There was no glass in the sink, no glass on the cutlery or the crockery. All the glass had been taken out like like a, like he had said, like a suck force, been taken out through the window. So, whoever had sucked him out was either over 2.1 metres tall, standing at the base, or they were bloating, bloating above, yeah. looking in through the house. To clear the sink in the kitchen, the man would have had to take a running leap through the window, and his trajectory would have carried him well beyond the back steps, where he had landed directly straight down out of the window. He'd fallen straight down onto his back. He was about 160 centimetres tall and he weighed about 55 kilos. So he was not necessarily tall or necessarily heavy. And he was standing at a sink about 45 centimetres wide. His wife insisted that when he went through the window, he was not struggling or thrashing at all. He was just going straight through the window. And he went through a glass plane uh, 51 centimetres high, wide, sorry, and 25 centimetres high. So it was quite 
That's narrow. very narrow. Yeah, very narrow, very oblong-shaped window. Touched nothing on the sink in front of him. And the next day, he had no soreness whatsoever. So that's one strange case. Now That's very that, strange. <laughs> then there's photographs of the window, of the sink, and what I did... Being, being the being who I am, I Google Maps walked Greenhill to find the house. Right, I went up and down every street, looked at every house, and I didn't actually find it. Right, then recently, before I went to Cardwell, I was reading and I found another snippet on the case, and it had one key piece of information that I hadn't had previously. It said that the house was right down next to the river. Right. So I went back and I searched all the houses along the riverfront there on Google Maps. Found the house. The same windows are there today. They're the same windows with the same little thing that runs across it, the same width. It's a weatherboard house. The weatherboards are all the same size as in the, 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 the Argus photographs. So I know exactly where the house was, uh, where the incident occurred back in 1971. Now, that was just the start of the Kempsey flat. And you know what? In in today's age, that house has probably changed hands a couple of times. You can, I guarantee you, Ben, if you, you would know the address, I probably wouldn't share it yep. Um, yep. on, on, on yep. here. Um, but you put that address straight into Google, you'll either get a realestate.com listing for that yep. or a domain yep. listing, and you'll be able to take essentially a virtual tour throughout that house. Yes, exactly right. 100%. Exactly right. That is all so achievable now in this day and age. And and I know it's the exact house because there's a photo of the wife standing next to the window and when you look out the window, you can see the type of trees that are in the background and bang, it's the it's the same trees. So I know 100% it's the right house. It's, a, wow. it's, it's the house that, where that incident occurred, yeah. That's incredible. And, you know, like what, what a credit to you for like just being such a – uh, I guess a dedicated researcher into into finding that you know a lot of people yeah. really would give up on that type of thing and not do like the I guess the the house by house kind of approach and you know yeah. you, you yourself like you you secretly have this like little piece of incredible UFO history and like the the absolute taking off point what a what an accomplishment like you must have about that oh that was that was really amazing and and just on a side note. That was a small example of, of me doing that because I also uh, run a, um, a true crime cold case page dedicated to a particular serial killing in Melbourne. And I'd watched a news report with the prime suspect and I thought, I'm going to find his house. And his house was a, was a dark stained house with, with, with yellow um, border windows, right? I street walked every street in North Frankston <laughs> and went down every, every street looking. It's a very distinctive house, right? Very distinctive. I street walked every house in North Frankston on Google Google Maps, didn't find it. Did an ABN search. He lived in Seaford, the the, the adjacent the adjacent suburb, and I street walked in Seaford, found the house. So you're a genuine that, online sleuth. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so that's just an example of what investigators have to do. You, you have to, and the other thing I also say is you have to investigate the truth of stories. I want to find the house. I want to find the road. I want to find where it happened. For all the cases I work with, 
I even I even I even came close to finding Bronte's farm. I know it's one of two farms. Because I went out I street walked up out of Spalding, twenty Ks, and there's a group of, of three houses and it has to be one of those three farms. But I don't know no, I don't know conclusively which one. I even got onto uh resident you know, like um White Pages Residential, Bronte Bronte type search, no, nah, there's no one living there now. So I, I went through all the avenues I could to, and I knew he was dead. I knew I wasn't going to find him, but I was just trying to find if there was one of the family members still yeah. had a house there. No, nah, couldn't find that. But you go as far as your legs will take you. Yeah, absolutely. And I tell you what, like you, you may be surprised, Ben, that someone who listens to this podcast may have a connection because um, we we essentially with um, with George Simpson coming on the podcast, he found a, a personal connection through this podcast. To, to kind of get him another step of information for the Volantage case. Yeah, brilliant. Yeah. So if you, anyone knows anything about the uh, about the cases we've discussed tonight, by all means, share it with you or share it with me. And, um, you know, that's not a – yeah, happy to happy to always take on new leads. Absolutely, mate. And, look, we, we might leave it there tonight. Um, yeah. I have – Obviously, a billion questions I could I could ask you about each of these cases, and I know you'll know them inside out. But um, you you did mention earlier that you you kind of did a, a bit of an online thing yourself earlier, um, where you you kind of t- you spoke about a lot of these cases. And look, this yep. is obviously an open invite to to kind of get you back on the show. I'd love to chat your ear off a hundred hundred times, um, yep. and and I'm sure the the listeners are just completely enthralled with. The, the these you know these kind of hidden little gems of, of UFO history in Australia and uh, yeah. I genuinely had no idea about any of these and like they each one of them has blown my mind and kind of just sent chills down my spine um, <laughs> but but where could people kind of find that stuff where you've maybe previously spoken about some of this before um, is yep. there like an online area they can find you yeah I've just wrapped up my own podcast which I've been doing for about um, eighteen months on an American network called UNX Network, and my show was called Unexplained Phenomena Australia. So if you go to YouTube and you find the UNX Network um, page and you go onto their page, click onto their live section, and you'll find all my shows that I've done about Australian paranormal, from UFOs, ghosts, to Yowies, done them all. Uh, They're all on the UNX Network's channel and not only will you find my shows when you click on their live section you'll find all their other great hosts in america that do a lot of shows because my show was on an american network and uh, the only reason i've stopped it or put it on hiatus is because i'm writing a book at the moment called australia's strangest ufo cases so that's why i put my radio show on on hold so i can focus on bringing all this material and all the photos all the other evidence i've got material into a book yeah, and I tell you what, that is the perfect way to kind of like redirect any of that mental bandwidth that you have because putting it out in a book is going to be so beneficial for kind of UFO history in Australia and, and obviously the world because, as you know, like these encounters, they, they happen everywhere and to anyone. Yes. So the the stories and the encounters that you would write about and you'll share in that book will, I have no doubt, completely help people all around the world kind of just reaffirming what happened to them and, you know, letting them know that they're not alone, they're not crazy, like they didn't imagine these types of things. 100%, exactly. And, and in, in all my research, people say to me, Ben, where do UFOs occur? And I say they have been everywhere. 
And you might think that's a crazy statement, but no, if you research your local area, you research anywhere in Australia, you will find there is a rich UFO paranormal history everywhere. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, it's it's something I, I have a little side project that I'll, I'll talk to you about probably off the air, but maybe I can talk about it when this episode comes out. We'll see. Um, but I think, I think it'll be right down your alley. But, mate, thank you so much for joining me tonight. It has been an absolute pleasure chatting with you. Um, again, I, I, I could take your entire night and unfortunately the uh the beast that is daylight savings is now in effect in australia so uh it is incredibly <laughs> late where you are and for me <laughs> it's uh quite early in the night so mate i do appreciate yeah. you for um taking the effort and and giving me some of your time tonight i truly appreciate it and mate again it's an open offer to get you on the podcast anytime you want Sure thing, Cade. Thank you very much for having me, and uh, no doubt we'll come back and share some more eye strangeness tales. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Believe Paranormal and UFO podcast. If you have had an encounter and you would like to share it, please get in touch with me. My email address is believepod at gmail.com. Finally, don't forget to follow us on all our social media outlets and be sure to join our Discord server to talk to other listeners of the show. You'll find all these links in our show notes. Thank you. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com.